Chapter Three, Part Two of Nana by Emile Zola, translated by Burton Rasco. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Three, Part Two. On another occasion, continued Steiner, speaking very low, Leonide made her tenor come to Montauban. She was living at the Chateau de Beaurecueil, two leagues from there and every day she came in a carriage and pair to see him at the Hôtel du Lion d'Or, where he was staying. The carriage waited at the door, and Leonide remained in the hotel for hours, whilst a crowd assembled and admired the horses. The conversation ceased, and a rather solemn interval succeeded. Two young men were whispering, but they soon left off, and nothing was heard but Count Mifa's faint footsteps as he walked across the room. The lamps seemed to be burning low, the fire was going out, and a deep shadow almost hid from sight the old friends of the family as they sat in the chairs they had occupied there for forty years past. It was as though between a couple of sentences the guests had felt the Count's mother return with her grand icy-cold look. Countess Sabine, however, soon resumed. At any rate, there was a report to that effect. The young man, it seems, died, and that will explain why the poor child took the veil. It is said, also, that Monsieur de Fougeray would never have given his consent to the marriage. There are a great many other things said, too, giddily exclaimed Leonide. She laughed, at the same time refusing to explain herself. Sabine, affected by this gaiety, carried her handkerchief to her mouth, and this laughter in the solemnity of the vast apartment had a ring which struck Fauchery. It sounded like the breaking of glass. Without a doubt, something was cracked there. Then the ladies all started off talking at once. Madame de Jonquois protested. Madame Chanteroux knew that a marriage had been contemplated, but that nothing further had taken place. Even the gentlemen ventured to give their views. For some minutes there was quite a confusion of opinions in which the different elements of the room, the Bonapartists and the Legitimists mixed with the worldly skeptics, elbowed each other and spoke at the same time. Estelle had rung for more wood for the fire, and the footman had wound up the lamps. It was quite like an awakening. Faucherie was smiling as though perfectly at his ease. Why, of course, they espouse God when they cannot marry their cousin, said Vandeuvre between his teeth, thoroughly bored with the subject as he went and joined Faucherie. My boy, have you ever seen a woman beloved become a nun? He did not wait for a reply. He had had enough of it. And in a low voice he added, I say, how many shall we be tomorrow? There will be the Mignons, Steiner, you, Blanche, and myself. Who else? Caroline, I think, Simone, Gaga for certain. One never knows exactly, you know. On such occasions one expects about twenty and thirty to turn up. Vandeuvre, who was looking at the ladies, turned to another subject. She must have been very good-looking, Madame de Jonquois, fifteen years ago. That poor Estelle seems to have grown longer than ever. What a plank she'll be to put in a bed. But he interrupted himself and returned to the question of the supper. The nuisance in that sort of things is that one always meets the same women. We ought to have some new ones. Try and discover one. Wait, I have an idea. I'll go and ask that stout man to bring the girl he was lugging about at the Variety Theatre the other evening. He was speaking of the head of the department who was dozing in the middle of the room. Faucherie amused himself by watching the delicate negotiation from a distance. Vandeuvre seated himself beside the stout man who continued to look very dignified. 
for a short time they both seemed to discuss with all the seriousness it merited the weighty question of the moment which was what real reason a young girl could have for becoming a nun then the count returned saying it isn't possible he swears that she is virtuous she would be sure to refuse yet i would have bet that i had seen her at laws what you go to laws murmured faucherie with a laugh you venture to risk your person in such places i thought it was only we poor devils who did that oh dear boy one must see everything then they both chuckled and their eyes sparkled as they gave each other different details about the dining-place in the rue des martyrs where fat la pied faire for three francs a head provided dinner for ladies who were down in their luck it was a dirty hole all the little women kissed laure on the mouth then as the countess looked in their direction having overheard a word or two they moved away together both very lively and highly amused they had not noticed georges hugon standing near them listening and blushing so hard that from his neck to his ears he became quite red the baby was full of a mixture of shame and rapture since his mother had left him alone in the drawing-room he had hovered round about madame de chezel the only woman whom he thought at all up to anything and yet nana could give her a lot last night madame hugon was saying georges took me to the theatre yes to the variety where i had certainly not been for ten years or more the child adores music as for myself it did not amuse me much but he seemed so happy they bring out most peculiar pieces nowadays i must admit however that i have no great taste for music what madame you do not care for music exclaimed madame de jonquois raising her eyes to heaven is it possible that everybody does not like music the exclamation was general no one offered a remark in reference to the piece produced at the variety theatre and of which the worthy madame hugon had not understood anything the other ladies knew about it but would say nothing they at once went in for sentiment and a refined and ecstatic admiration of the great masters madame de jonquois only cared for Weber. madame chantereau preferred the italians the sound of the ladies' voices became soft and languid. One might have thought the group gathered round the fire to be a party at church, discreetly and faintly intoning a canticle in some little chapel. Let's see, murmured Vandeuvre, leading Faucherie into the middle of the room. We must somehow or other discover a new woman for tomorrow. Suppose we ask Steiner. Oh, Steiner, said the journalist, never gets hold of a woman until all Paris has had enough of her. Vandeuvre, however, looked about him. Wait, he resumed. I met Foucarmont with some fair charmer the other day. I will go and ask him to bring her. And he beckoned to Foucarmont. They rapidly exchanged a few words, but there seemed to be some difficulty, for they both cautiously picked their way over the ladies' skirts and joined another young man, with whom they continued their conference in the recess of a window. Faucherie, left alone, decided to join the group by the fire, just as Madame du Jonquois was stating that she could never hear Weber's music without at once seeming to see lakes, forests, and the sun rising over landscapes bathed in dew. But a hand touched his shoulder whilst a voice said behind him, "'It's not at all kind of you.' "'What isn't?' he asked, turning round and recognizing La Faloise. "'That's supper, tomorrow night. You might at least have got me invited.' Faucherie was just about to reply when Vandeuvre returned and said to him, It seems the girl has nothing to do with Foucarmont, 
She belongs to that other gentleman over there. She won't be able to come. What a bore! But all the same, I've hooked Poucarmont. He will try and bring Louise of the Palais Royal Theatre. Monsieur de Vendeuvre, asked Madame Chanterot, raising her voice, is it not true that Wagner's music was hissed on Sunday? Oh, atrociously, madame, he replied, advancing with his exquisite politeness. Then, as the ladies did not detain him, he moved away and continued in an undertone in the journalist's ear. I shall go and hook some more. All these young fellows must know some little women. Then he was seen pleasantly smiling the while to go up to the different men and talk with them in all parts of the room. He mingled with the various groups, dropped a few words here and there, and then withdrew, winking his eyes and making other signs. It was as though he was, in his easy way, giving out a watchword. His words were passed from one to another, and appointments were made, whilst the ladies' sentimental dissertations on music drowned the agitated buzz caused by all these alluring attempts. No, don't mention your Germans, repeated Madame Chanterot. Song is gaiety, is light. Have you heard Patti in Il Barbiere? Delicious, murmured Leonide, who could only strum opera bouffe airs on her piano. Countess Sabine now rang for tea, which was served in the drawing-room when the visitors on a Tuesday were not numerous. Whilst having a small table cleared by a footman, the Countess followed Count de Vendeuvre with her eyes. She preserved that vague smile which showed a little the whiteness of her teeth, and as the Count passed near her she questioned him. "'Whatever are you plotting, Monsieur de Vendeuvre?' "'I, madame,' he calmly replied, "'I am not plotting anything.' "'Ah, you seem to be so very busy. See, you must make yourself useful.' She placed an album in his hands and asked him to put it on the piano. But he found means of informing Faucherie on the quiet that Tatanini, who had the best neck and shoulders of the season, would be there, and also Maria Blonde, who had just made her first appearance at the Folie Dramatique Theatre. La Faloise, however, kept stopping him at almost every step, expecting an invitation. He ended by offering himself. Vendeuvre engaged him at once. Only he made him promise to bring Clarisse, and as La Faloise affected to be scrupulous, he quieted him by saying, But I invite you, that is quite sufficient. Nevertheless, La Faloise would very much have liked to have known the name of the woman at whose house the supper was to take place, but the Countess had recalled Vendeuvre and was questioning him as to the way the tea was made in England. He was often there attending the races in which his horses ran. According to him, only the Russians knew how to make tea, and he mentioned their recipe. Then, as though he had been thinking very much while speaking, he interrupted himself to ask, By the way, and the Marquis, were we not to have seen him? Why, yes, my father certainly promised, replied the Countess. I am beginning to feel uneasy. His work must have detained him. Vendeuvre smiled discreetly. He also seemed to have a doubt as to the nature of the work on which the Marquis de Choir was engaged. He had thought of a charming person whom the Marquis sometimes took into the country. Perhaps they might be able to get her for the supper. However, Faucherie thought the time had come for acquainting Count Mufa with the invitation he had for him. It was getting late. Do you seriously mean it? asked Vendeuvre, who thought it was a joke. Most seriously. If I don't ask him, she will scratch my eyes out. It's a whim of hers, you know. Then I'll help you, my boy. The clock struck eleven. The countess and her daughter served the tea. 
as there were scarcely any but intimate friends the cups and plates of biscuits and cake were familiarly handed round the ladies remained in their chairs before the fire sipping their tea and crunching the biscuits which they held between the tips of their fingers from music the conversation dwindled to tradesmen there was no one like boissier for sweets and catherine for ices madame chantereau however preferred la taille the talk slackened a weariness seemed to seize upon every one steiner had resumed his attack on the deputy whom he blockaded in the corner of a sofa m venot whose teeth had probably been destroyed by sweetmeats was rapidly devouring some hard cakes making a little noise like a mouse whilst the head of the department his nose in his cup never seemed to have had enough and the countess without the least hurry moved from one to another not pressing them but standing a few seconds looking at the men in a sort of silent interrogative manner then smiling and passing on the heat of the fire had given quite a colour to her face and she seemed to be the sister of her daughter who looked so skinny and awkward beside her as she drew near to faucherie who was conversing with her husband and vandeuvre she noticed that they left off talking she did not stop but passing further on offered georges hugon the cup of tea she was carrying it is a lady who desires your company at supper gaily resumed the journalist addressing count Mufa. the latter whose countenance had retained its dark look all the evening seemed greatly surprised what lady could they mean why nana said vandeuvre so as to have it out at once the count became still more serious he scarcely moved his eyelids whilst a pain like a twitch of neuralgia passed over his face but i do not know the lady he murmured oh come now why you went and called on her observed vandeuvre what i called on her ah yes the other day for the poor relief committee i had forgotten all about it all the same i do not know her i cannot accept he assumed his most dignified air to let them understand that he considered their joke in very bad taste the place of a man of his rank was not at the table of such a woman vandeuvre protested it was merely a supper given to some actresses talent excused everything but without listening to him any more than to faucherie who began to tell him of a dinner at which a prince the son of a queen had sat next to a woman who used to sing at music halls the count gave a most decided refusal he even in spite of his great politeness accompanied it with a gesture of annoyance georges and la faloise standing up drinking their tea in front of each other had overheard the few words that had been exchanged so near them halloo it's to be at nana's murmured la faloise i might have known it georges said nothing but he became very red in the face his fair hair was all ruffled his blue eyes were shining like candles the vice with which he had mixed during the last few days inflamed and excited him at last then he was about to meet with all that he had dreamed of the nuisance is i don't know the address resumed la faloise boulevard houseman between the rue de l'arcade and the rue pasquier on the third floor said georges all in a breath and as the other looked at him with astonishment he added becoming redder still in the face and bursting with conceit and confusion i am going she invited me this morning just at this moment there was a great commotion in the drawing-room vandeuvre and faucherie were therefore unable to press the count any further the marquis de choix had arrived and every one hastened to greet him he seemed to move along very painfully his legs almost giving way beneath him 
and he at length stood still in the middle of the room, his face ashy pale and his eyes blinking, as though he had just come out of some very dark place and was quite blinded by the light of the lamps. "'I had quite given up expecting to see you, father,' said the countess. "'I should have been quite uneasy until I heard from you to-morrow.' He looked at her without replying, like a man who does not understand. His nose, which appeared very big on his clean-shaven face, looked like an enormous gathering, whilst his underlip drooped. Madame Hugon, full of kindliness, seeing him so depressed, pitied him. "'You work too much. You ought to rest. At our age we should leave work to the younger ones.' "'Work? Ah, yes, work,' he at length stammered out. "'Always plenty of work.' He was becoming himself again. He straightened his bent frame, passing his hand in a way familiar with him over his white hair, the scanty locks of which were brushed behind his ears. "'What is it you work at so late?' asked Madame de Jonquois. "'I thought you were at the reception held by the Minister of Finance.' But the Countess interposed. "'My father had to study some parliamentary bill.' "'Yes, a parliamentary bill,' said he. "'A bill, exactly. I shut myself in.' It was in respect to factories. I wish them to be closed on Sundays. It is really shameful that the government does not display more energy in the matter. The churches are now scarcely frequented. It will all end in a great catastrophe. Vendeuvre glanced at Faucherie. They were both behind the Marquis and they kept near him. When Vendeuvre was able to take him on one side to ask him about the charming person whom he was in the habit of taking into the country, the old man affected great surprise. Perhaps they had seen him with Baroness Decker, at whose house at Verouflet he sometimes spent a few days. Vendeuvre, for revenge, asked him suddenly, "'I say, wherever have you been? Your elbow is all covered with cobwebs and plaster.' "'My elbow?' he murmured, slightly troubled. "'Why, so it is.' A little dirt. I must have got that somehow as I came here. Several persons were leaving. It was close upon midnight. Two footmen silently removed the empty cups and the plates of cake. The ladies were still sitting in front of the fire, though in a smaller circle than before, conversing more freely in the languor of the end of an evening. Even the room itself seemed overcome with drowsiness, and heavy shadows lingered about the walls. Then Faucherie talked of retiring. However, his eyes once more sought Countess Sabine. Having seen to her guests, she was now resting in her accustomed seat, saying nothing, her glance fixed on a log that was gradually burning away, and her face so white and impenetrable that his doubts returned to him. The little black hairs on the mark she had near the corner of her mouth seemed quite golden in the firelight, exactly the same as Nana's even to the color. He could not resist whispering to Vendeuvre about it. It was really quite true. He had never noticed it before, and they continued the parallel between Nana and the Countess. They discovered a vague resemblance about the chin and the mouth, but the eyes were not at all alike. There Nana looked thoroughly kind-hearted and good-natured, whilst the Countess was altogether doubtful. One would have said a cat asleep with her claws hidden away and her paws only slightly agitated with a nervous tremble. All the same, she's a fine woman, declared Faucherie. Vendeuvre seemed to unrobe her with a glance. "'Yes, all the same,' said he. "'But you know, I have great doubts as to her thighs. She hasn't any worth speaking of, I'll bet.' 
He stopped as Faucherie sharply nudged his elbow and directed his attention to Estelle, who was seated on her stool in front of them. They had raised their voices without noticing her, and she had most likely overheard them. However, she remained upright and immovable, with her skinny neck of a girl growing too fast, and on which not the smallest hair had turned. So they moved away a few steps, and Vendeuvre expressed his opinion that the Countess was a most virtuous woman. At this moment, the ladies seated round the fire, having raised their voices, Madame de Joncois was heard to say, I have admitted that Count Bismarck may possess some wit. However, if you pretend he has genius... They had once more returned to their first subject of conversation. What, Bismarck again? murmured Faucherie. Well, this time I will indeed be off. Wait a minute, said Vendeuvre. We must have a final no from the Count. Count Mufa was conversing with his father-in-law and a few serious-looking men. Vendeuvre took him to one side and repeated the invitation more pressingly, saying that he himself was going to the supper. A man could go anywhere. No one would think of seeing harm where at the most there was only a little curiosity. The Count listened to these arguments with downcast eyes and immovable features. Vendeuvre noticed that he seemed to hesitate when the Marquis de Choir joined them with a look of interrogation on his face and when the latter was made acquainted with the subject under discussion, when Faucherie invited him also, he glanced furtively at his son-in-law. There was a moment of silence and embarrassment, but they encouraged each other, and they would no doubt have ended by accepting, if Count Mifa had not noticed that Monsieur Venot was watching him fixedly. The little old man no longer smiled, his face bore a cadaverous expression, his eyes were sharp and piercing like gimlets. No, replied the Count at once, in such a decided tone of voice that there was nothing more to be said. Then the Marquis declined more sternly still. He talked of morality. The upper classes ought to set an example. Faucherie smiled and shook hands with Vendeuvre. He would not wait for him, but went off at once as he had to look in at the office of his paper. At Nana's at midnight, don't forget. La Faloise was leaving also, and Steiner had just taken leave of the Countess. Other men were following them, and the same words were whispered on all sides, each one repeating, At Nana's at midnight, as he put on his overcoat in the anteroom. Georges, who was waiting for his mother, stood in the doorway and gave them all the correct address. The third floor, the door on the left-hand side. Before retiring, Faucherie gave one last look round. Vendeuvre had resumed his place in the midst of the ladies, and was jesting with Leonide de Chiselle. Count Mufa and the Marquis de Choir were joining in the conversation, whilst worthy Madame Hugon was going to sleep with her eyes open. Behind the ladies' petticoats, Monsieur Venot, making himself scarce again, had recovered his smile, and in the big solemn room the clock slowly struck midnight. What? What? Madame de Joncois was exclaiming. You think that Count Bismarck will declare war against us, and that he will beat us? Oh, that's too much! They were, in fact, all laughing at Madame Chantereau, who had just made the statement which she had heard in Alsace where her husband owned a factory. The Emperor is watching, thank goodness, said Count Mufa with official solemnity. These were the last words that Faucherie heard. He closed the door after looking once more at Countess Sabine. She was calmly conversing with the head of the department and seemed interested in the talk of the stout man. Most certainly he must have been mistaken, there was no flaw. It was a pity. Well, aren't you coming? called La Faloise to him from the hall. 
and outside on the pavement as they bid each other good night, they both again repeated, Tomorrow at Nana's. End of chapter 3